Hi, I'm Ed Jaffe and welcome to JaffeWoodwinds.com. Today we're out in Los Angeles interviewing four of the greatest musicians this country has ever produced. These gentlemen have represented the highest level of professionalism in their careers as studio musicians, as soloists, as jazz artists, and they represent a history of American music that I think is so vital for all of us to become more aware of. And I'm thrilled to have with me Ronnie Lang, Gene Cipriano, Gary Foster, and Don Ashworth. Uh, gentlemen, thank you so much for spending the time today, and, and I'm sure this is going to be a lot of fun for all of us, and certainly informative for our listeners. Um, I have a question. For question. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Already was thought. If I'm so great, how come I'm not working tonight? <laughs> Oh, Lord, it's a 7 o'clock. <laughs> Beware, oh, folks. Okay. <laughs> I, a, I had to interject. Okay. Uh, you're not on that Ben Barrett thing? No. Okay. <laughs> All right. Anyway, just for our listeners to get a little uh, insight uh, into each of you, uh, just briefly tell us, we'll go down the line at this point from Ronnie down to Don, uh, how you began your musical studies and what was, what was the first woodwind that you actually played? All right, the first woodwind I actually played was the clarinet. And the reason for that is, after playing terrible piano, my, my parents thought I was a genius and they gave me piano lessons. I was terrible. Uh, in 1940, I went to a movie and I saw Artie Shaw. And I saw this handsome guy playing the clarinet and I said, God, I have to do that. It was like a ball player who found uh, Joe DiMaggio. Or something. Sure. So I ran home and I said, uh, uh, I want to play the clarinet. And my mother said, why? I said, I want to be Artie Shaw. And she said, you can't make a living playing the clarinet. <laughs> and she said, when I was in a little Russian village, uh, a clarinet player would come, and of course he was a klezmer, right. uh, which I have it, you had it on my tape. Yeah. And she said, when they got through, they'd be lucky to get a piece of cake and a glass of wine. Right. So that's how I got started. Uh, right. And where, and where did you grow up? Uh, I actually grew up in Los Angeles. I was born in Chicago. Uh, my my father w went to work first in San Francisco, and then around 1937, uh, I was about eight years old. We we moved to Los Angeles. So I'm actually, as a musician, uh, I was always here. I didn't come from somewhere else. Right, right. And Gene, what? Wh how did you begin playing, and what was your first instrument? Clarinet. Also, <clears throat> my dad was a clarinet player and saxophone player. He used to play at the Schubert Theater in New Haven, Connecticut. And that's where you when grew up would, in New Haven. When they would break up, right. break in shows for Broadway. I see. And he gave my first clarinet was a metal clarinet. I think Dad paid ten bucks for it. I remember one time I, I bought a really bad lesson, man. He took the clarinet and banged over my knee, and the bell came off. He <laughs> said, "You want to be a boob? You want to go and play with the gang? Go." And then a week later, I. I wanted to play the clarinet, and uh, then I got serious, and he had to get the bell soldered back on. Right. And that was it. And, and, and that, that's in New Haven, Connecticut? Yes. Okay. And, and Gary, I know you're from Kansas, Leavenworth, Kansas. Yes. And uh, wh what was your first uh, woodwind? Clarinet. Also clarinet. Leavenworth, Kansas, which is the home of Fort Leavenworth, and also of the big penitentiary. It's about 40 miles from Kansas City. Okay. My uh, first hook to music, really, to the, I had the clarinet. My mother, I think, suggested that. And in the eighth grade, a graduate, a newly graduated man from the University of Kansas, his first job 
came in the eighth and ninth grade. He was there, then he was drafted. But he was my hook to music, a man named Olin Parker, who later became a very distinguished educator. And uh, he played music in the rehearsals. He could play the saxophone and the clarinet. He played classical music for us, right. jazz music. We had a little band called the Teen Timers. <laughs> My folks bought me a tenor when I was in the ninth grade. And uh, trying to play along with records, everybody did that. I don't think there was any. I asked him once how you improvised. I think it was probably a Cal Basie record, maybe Lester Young. And I said, because we had an arrangement that we were playing that had just the whole notes stacked up, you know? Yeah. And when this person played the solo on the record, I said, how is that? How does he do that? And he said, well, you're either born with that or you don't have it. Right, the typical, <laughs> stereotypical answer. So I was happy right. to yeah. start trying to do it by ear. Yeah, which, which is the best way to do it. Absolutely. And Don, uh, where, did you, okay. where did you grow up and what, how did you get into music? I started taking piano. I guess my mother wanted us all to take. So piano and I just didn't hit it. We used to fight all the time. <laughs> just like Ronnie. Huh? <laughs> like the same thing oh. with Ronnie. So I mean, meanwhile, I had a friend down the end of the street, and he had a record player. He used to play a lot of Benny Goodman clarinet. He, he was a studying, the kid was a studying clarinet player. So that's how I got, I, I couldn't believe this guy. Yeah. You know, but it's interesting that you all your first woodwinds were all clarinet, yeah. right? And, and uh, which is sort of you know a traditional way of beginning to become a saxophone player. At least in, in those days, most people didn't start necessarily off on saxophone initially. They usually played another instrument first. And it's interesting all of you becoming you know world famous doublers. That clarinet was your first instrument. Yeah. Well, you know the clarinet because of Benny Goodman, Hardy Shaw. Sure. Uh, uh, some others are maybe not quite that great, but the, the clarinet was more featured as an instrument as far as jazz and everything than it, it became later, except for Eddie Daniels and people like that. Right. So right. Uh, the saxophone was <coughs> secondary. Right. So it became like what the guitar became in the 60s and 70s and the synthesizer. Right. It was the, 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 the pop instrument of the day. And was jazz, was jazz the hook for all of you uh, as far as getting into music more seriously? Was that the music that most enticed you? Uh, yeah. Well, yeah, I think so. Uh, like I say, uh, from Artie Shaw, uh, then the Bingan era came up uh, shortly. And, and of course, I had to buy a saxophone like uh, because I wasn't going to be Artie Shaw. Hardly anybody was at right. that time. <laughs> so... Uh, I pick up the saxophone and uh, and then the, the big big bands became my focus. More, uh, so you know. Well, all and all of you played with big bands at various points, uh, and and were uh, big bands were such a vital part not only of the American culture but of your uh, upbringing. Can you talk to the uh, especially to our younger listeners since big bands today are generally hard to get into or play other than if you're in college. There are very few professional big bands that work consistently. Uh, how important did you feel playing in big bands was to your development as a musician and then ultimately to your career success? Let's start with Don this time. Sonda Finnegan. 
What, that was what, that's pretty intense. Starting at the he got, me, he got me out of the army three months early to join the band in New York, which I, I couldn't believe this is happening. I thought a lot of the guys in the band, in the Sauter Finnegan band, but uh, Bill Finnegan and Eddie Sauter, two of the nicest guys in the world, talented. Anyway, that's how I got it. Gary, what was the first big band uh, that you remember playing a professional big band? In Los Angeles. Wherever. First, well, what? I played with Louis Belson fairly early on here. Right. He was a wonderful man. Was that did, before Toshiko? Yes. Okay. Toshiko started in 1973, okay. went to 82. And Gene, I know you were on the road quite a bit with big bands. Oh, my first band was Ted Fiorito. Oh, okay. <laughs> Betty Grable was, you know, she sang with She was the singer band. with yeah. the band. <laughs> and Doc Severinsen was on the band, 17 years old, and he played all these solos. He was great. Was he, he was already great. a great jazz? He was, he was already great. great. great 17 years old. Skinny kid, a lot of pimples on his face. <laughs> and he just played beautifully. And But I... I, I I was a junior in high school. My dad let me go out with the band. Just for the summer, my friend Don Trenner, who was a piano player, he was on the band, and he got me on the band. But then I had to go back to finish high school, and the last gig we did was at the Steel Pier in Atlantic City. And we played the first two hours, and then Benny Goodman followed us on with the big band. And wow. got him just there listening to Benny play. My mouth was open, I couldn't believe it. And I, I said, and I have to go back and finish high school? <laughs> but I promised my dad I would, because my dad really wanted me to become a dentist or a pharmacist. Good uh, idea. Now, here, here's an interesting thing. You're from New Haven, Connecticut. Yes. Ronnie Odridge is from New Haven. I know, my dad knew him. And Ronnie Odridge's uh, parents wanted him to become a musician, and he became a periodontist. A, a very good one, too. And, and of course, and your family wanted to become a dentist, and you became a musician. Yeah. So there you go. Hmm. <laughs> and then uh, I, I went to back to finish high school, and then October of the, after I graduated, we used to have the Schubert Theater. They bring name bands in every uh -huh. Sunday, and Tony Pastor's band came in, and he was looking for some saxophone players. And Rosemary Clooney was the girl singer, and uh, so I got a call, and I and a few other guys, and I went down and played one of the shows, and they hired me. So I went on the road, uh, let's see, 140 bucks a week, and I thought, oh, God, that was pretty good money. It man. was? Yeah, and I was with Tony. Wow, and that was in the 40s? Yes, this was in 46 and 47. Okay. We came out here and did a movie, and I thought, oh, God, what a great life. We left Washington in a blizzard, D.C. When we came out here, the sun was out, and the next day I went to the beach, because they had the trolley car, Santa Monica trolley, went right to the ocean. I said, this Red is where, car, yeah. this is where I'm going to come to live someday. Yeah. That was it. Great. And Ronnie, you, you were a star of the Les Brown Band in the 50s. Yeah. Was that your first big band? No, experience? actually, my first big band was uh, Skinny Ennis. Do you remember the name Skinny Ennis? See, he doesn't remember. You guys remember no, Skinny Ennis. Did you remember uh, that for your Skinny Ennis was, yes. a, oh, was out of the Hal Kemp Band in North Carolina. He was a singer and a drummer. Uh -huh and uh, made some recordings, and uh, it was a you know, fairly good band. Uh, he used to do the Bob Hope show, and he, uh, he lost that at some, some point or other. 
But uh, uh, I told you that uh, he was the first person, uh, the first band that I was with that went to New York. We were on the road. We drove all night, uh, and we were working the Capitol Theater with Lena Horne, Skinny Ennis, and wow. a movie. Remember, they had they, movie well, they always had movies. Right. And we drove all night, yeah. and uh, I was uh, 18 years old. And we ended up at the Capitol Theater, a stage door, unloading the instruments. Then we were going to go to the hotel, get some sleep, and go back and rehearse. We drive up to the stage door of, of the Capitol Theater, and there's Charlie Parker standing by the, the door. It's like 6, 7 o'clock in the morning. And I go, hey, to the older guys, is that Charlie Parker? They said, yeah, they, they weren't surprised. I said, what's he doing here? He said, actually, he's probably here to borrow some money or something, you know. So uh, that's when I, when I said uh, the next two or three days after we did that, we used to end up in a bar and Charlie Parker would be there, people would be buying him drinks. At that point, he wasn't doing drugs, he was drinking. Uh, we were at a place called Beefsteak Charlie's, which was right across the street uh, from the Capitol Theater. And uh, uh, beer was 15 cents and the drinks were 25 cents. Uh, I remember Charlie Parker drinking three double shots of bourbon, which cost about 50 cents each, in the space of an hour without any visible effect on him whatsoever. So uh, that's when I said I've one of the few guys that spent a little time with Charlie Parker. Yeah. Uh, but uh, Les Brown uh, was, was actually the first well-known big band. I joined him uh, in 1949 at the Hollywood Palladium, and uh, I was with him 49 and 50. Then I went in the Army, it was during the Korean War, spent two years in an Army band, and uh, went back to Les Brown for two or three years after that. Uh, I might add that before that, uh, we were talking about high school. When I was in high school, I was playing with a band called the Teenagers which was uh, in 1946, I believe. And uh, in that band was Warren Marsh. You gave me a tape yeah, of I that. Gave I still have Gary a tape of that, of Warren playing. Wow. A, uh, Apple Honey. What was it? What was Apple it? Honey. Yeah. And Warren played a jazz solo. And I also, uh, that's why I learned how to imitate people, because every week they'd say, OK, you're Johnny Hodges. Uh, I'd do something like Johnny. Then you said, then you're. Uh, uh, Benny Carter and, and and also on clarinet. So when somebody wanted to know how I learned <clears throat> to play so different so many different ways I was asked to do that. I'd listen to them and I was able to kind of copy Kind of copy what right. they did. That, so that, that that early big band experience was instrumental uh, really in getting you As prepared. far as the saxophone so, was was concerned. Was concerned. Uh, yeah uh, But I never really developed a style of my own but because I was always told how to play. Yeah. Ronnie? Yeah. Excuse me, was an Andre Previn the piano player on no, that he, band? He wasn't, uh, he wasn't in that band. Oh. Uh, I once did a, uh, a radio show uh, where there were two guests. Andre Previn was one and I was the other. And Andre, Andre played piano and I remember I had a read a script. I was, wasn't nervous about playing, but reading a script, I remember my, <laughs> my hand was shaking. I was so glad to pick up the saxophone yeah. I played. I surrender, dear. <laughs> I mean, my, my parents liked to dance. And near Leavenworth, Kansas was Kansas City. The Playmore Ballroom was there, and in St. Joe, Missouri, about 40 miles away, was the Frog Hop. 
And at a point, I'd go with them, and I'd stand in front of the band. And I heard Les's band at least twice with Ronnie playing lead alto. Wow. Wow. That's right. Do, do, do you remember roughly what years that might have been? Early, well, well, early 50s? I worked with them 49, 50, then after the Army, 53 and 54. So it would have been... Could have been anywhere in 50 to 54. Right. Yeah, because... Right. I graduated from high school in 54, and I never went home. Yeah, okay. Wow. So would you all agree that that big band experience was invaluable to your later career as recording artists and studio work, getting the experience and also the confidence to perform confidence in front of people? Confidence is a big thing. That seemed yes. to go along with the jazz urge. You know, if you wanted to be a jazz player, That's where you you're going to wind up playing in a big band. Big band, yeah, which is sadly, sad to say, for many years now, that, that avenue has been... It's gone. In Leavenworth, Kansas, there was a band of older men called the Gentlemen of Note. I played there, subbed a lot with them. And so being around older players as a young yes. player, that, that's, that's also an invaluable experience. Sure. But also on these big bands, uh, you had to not only play dance, I mean, you had to constantly be reading as well as improvising. I mean, those building up those uh, traits and those abilities had to come become very valuable when you started going into the Hollywood recording situation and dealing with, you know, movie scores, TV jingles, record dates. I mean, all of that experience, I, I can't imagine today where one can just jump into a situation that you all did and being as prepared. Well, the, let me interject. Uh, I think all of us, besides the big band experience, as far as being studio players, we all had a pretty good legitimate background. Uh, my saxophone teacher took me through all kinds of saxophone and clarinet literature beside the jazz playing. Right. So uh, I didn't just show up as a as a dance band jazz player. Right. I played, uh, you know, uh, the last piece I I played as uh, uh, with my saxophone teacher was Concertina de Camera. By, by that was when you graduated, yeah. you played that, which was, right. you know, was, he played the record for you and then you played it. And I'm sure Everybody else had pretty. Don was an oboe major, and Gary was a clarinet, uh, and, and Sip too. He had all kinds of lessons from uh, good right. teachers. In, in my high school, we had a good dance band. Don Trenner was the piano player, but Cy Berger, a trombone player, oh, was sure. on the band. I remember Cy. Sonny well. Berman, who later played Woody, was on the band, and Louis Olds, another trumpet player. Wow. Was on the band. It was really a good band. I learned there, a lot. There are a lot of talented and we played arrangements. So I got a lot of my training. I was still in high school. That's right. where I learned to play the saxophone. And I think I wanted to also bring up a point that your early training with, with you know, jazz influence, but also with some classical background, fundamental background, is something that you all had. But you all pursued that beyond those early years, that it, later years when you moved into Hollywood and settled here, that, uh, or in John's case, you were in New York initially, um, that that type of training was not something that you just uh, forgot about, that you all continued to pursue that type of training and studying in late years with, with players. Can you talk about some of the training you had when you already were professionals, uh, some of the people you might have worked with or studied with? Well, uh, I found out uh, I, I had played the flute for many years because my saxophone teacher said, if you end up as a studio musician, you should play more than just two instruments. More than the sax yeah, and the clarinet. Yeah. So he said flute or the oboe, so I took up the flute, but I really didn't pursue it that much. 
because it wasn't necessary. But uh, when I started to do studio work a little bit, I found out that the other doublers were much better flute players than I was. They were much more accomplished. So that's when I, I found a really good flute teacher, Hokenberg. Do you remember oh, Hokenberg? Oh, sure. I, I took some and, lessons. And uh, he taught Louise <clears throat> de Tullio and Sheridan Stokes and among wow. other people. And I spent two years really trying to get myself up to a level where, because I would show up to dates and I said, I didn't really want to have to play the flute because I can't play as well as these guys. Right. So, and you had already been a star in the Les Brown Band well, yeah, at this right, time. Right. So what I'm trying to get at is that the training one had in school years or as a younger player, wasn't that wasn't just enough for all of you, that well, you kept pursuing ways to elevate your playing. And, and of course, by doing that, you elevated your higher ability as well. Yeah, well, yeah. anyway, that, that was... Yeah, yeah. Gary wanted... Oh, I didn't play the flute when I came here. When you moved to L.A., you didn't play the flute? No, I played the saxophone, and I had uh, played the clarinet very seriously. That was my major instrument in college. Right. But the flute was suggested to me. I met him, met John Lowe, who was a good low-end player and a yes. good doubler. And I met him with Claire Fisher's band, one of the first bands I played with here. And I, he knew I was a clarinet player, and Claire wrote some clarinet solos for me in his arrangements that were clearly something he'd imagined from his classical music. Those weren't so difficult for me. I don't, I don't know how other people would have played them. But uh, John said, do you play the flute? I went to Roger Stevens, who yeah. had taught some people. And uh, that's what got me going on the flute. And flute has become a very, was a very, very strong double for you, obviously. Yeah, yeah, it really was. Yeah. Yeah, really an accomplished flute player. And I know from our, from our years of talking about how much of an influence Julius Baker and people of that level were for you yeah. uh, in your play. Well, if we eventually talk about what to practice and how. Yeah, well, we're going to talk about that. <laughs> no, Don. Uh, Don. Right. Uh, you were an oboe. Uh, major in college? Or? I was a clarinet player through high school, right. and then I realized that there's only 87,000 clarinet players who <laughs> wanted to get into the music school, So, but and they needed an oboe doubler, an oboe player. Right. So I immediately got that. And Didn't you study with Tabitha? I studied when I was in Fort Dix. Yeah, and Gene... Had it, waited, waited, well, in 1948, I went into New York to to work on my 802 card. You had to live there six months. Right. That was a if you wanted to work in any local yes. in this country, you had to establish yourself for six months in that local. And so I I began to rehearse with a lot of bands at Nola Studios, and I got to work with Harvey Esterin, Red Press, God, Salt Slinger, and I was and I wanted I was playing. Oh, Let's see. I was playing, taking flute lessons because Harvey Estrin said, Sip, you should play the flute. I was just playing clarinet. I said, great. And I, he gave me a teacher and I studied about a year. And then I said, God, everybody's playing flute. I think I'll sell my flute and get an oboe. <laughs> and I sold my flute and bought an oboe and I studied with Tony Maley. Oh, and, sure. uh, Tony Maley, yeah. <laughs> he was a great teacher. He always had a lot of canes, smoked cigars. And uh, he played at the telephone hour. He was a very good oval player. And uh, let's see. Oh, yeah, in the meantime, we were working with 
different bands, not making much money. Claude Thornhill's band, we'd work a couple of nights. Gene Williams, who used to sing with Claude, right. got a band. It was all, and uh, and that was a lot of fun. Stoners. But making 90 bucks a week. Man. Everybody was stoned in there. Yes. Yeah, yeah, well, <laughs> and I got a call to my friend uh, Sal Libro, who was playing with the Tex Mendicke Glenn Miller Band, the right. lead clarinetcher. He, he called because he was from New Haven and he had studied with my dad. Right. He said, Sip, they're auditioning for a tenor player and we're going to California. I, I said, really? He said, I said, well, I'm, you know, I'm g getting my card, meeting people in New York. He said, well, are you making any money? I said, no. He says, well, Tex will pay you 165 bucks a week to join the band. So I went to, I took a train on a Sunday. Sal met me in New Jersey at the Meadowbrook. I, I played a broadcast and Benneke hired me. So I was with him for about a year and a half. And Mancini was in that band. That's where I met Henry Mancini. He was, he was the piano player. Yeah, right. Bobby Nichols was on trumpet. Right. It was a really good band. Johnny White was playing lead alto. actually uh, uh, different towns other than L.A. Now, you came out here when you were eight years old, you said, Ronnie. But, I mean, Gary, you were from Leavenworth, Kansas, New Haven, Connecticut, Pittsburgh. Pittsburgh. So and when you come out to L.A. and people were coming out here because clearly uh, the music scene was starting to build and thrive, and the, the recording industry, the movie industry were, were active, TV was just getting going, and, and, you know, this is where it was. Uh, but when you come to a new town, everyone needs someone to help connect them in an industry. It doesn't matter how talented you are. And that, I think that's for any discipline. But who were the people that were instrumental in helping you get your career off the ground here in L.A.? Okay, I, when I was with Dorsey's band, Sam Donahue was a tenor player. Famous. And great player. Great. And he left the band, and then I got married, married a chick singer. Ha, yo! And then came out here. And uh, Sam called me. He said, Sip, they're going to open up a new club, the Moulin Rouge, which was the Earl Carroll Theater. And his friend was going to be the leader. His name was Bob Snyder. 
And Sam got me on the band, and that was my first gig. I paid six days a week, but with a couple of matinees, I paid 130 bucks a week. I, I left I left Les Brown for that job after Sip had worked there. Yeah, uh, that got me off the road actually. Right. So, but right. in the meantime, uh, Mancini was working at Universal. He was he did like the Benny Goodman story and the Glenn Miller story. And I get a call from him one day. He remembered me. He said. Sip, you remember me? Because we were pretty good friends on the Benneke's band. We were both single. And I said, yeah. He said, do you play flute? And I had sold my flute to get an oboe. And I, you know, I was concentrating on the oboe. And I don't know, some, something told me to say yes. And I said, yeah, I could play the flute. He said, okay, I'm, gonna do, I'm doing a pilot called the Peter Gunn Show in about a month. So I got a flute. I, I rented a flute and really practiced. And I get sure enough, I get the call to do the show. And the first show, we had nothing to play. Pads, while guys played jazz. Ronnie would play a jazz solo, and then Pete Condoli would play jazz. And the flutes, we were bass fluting out, just holding whole notes. So I, I lucked in. You lucked I told him I but played the, the point, flute. But the point is, you had a connection to get to L.A., and then, Sam and Donahue, then, and then the connection from the big bands with Mancini. So it's the your colleagues, really, the guys who, who were obviously impressed with you as a player and as a person, that's the, that's the way you were able to transition. That was it. And Mancini got, you know, he got another show called Mr. Lucky, and then he began to do movies, and he was very loyal. And he hired the same guys all the time. Yeah, that's a lovely story. Yeah. Uh, Gary, how did you get started out here? What was your connection here when you... Well, I think about how we decided to come here. And, uh, right. I was a graduate student at the University of Kansas. My primary teacher was associate dean, and in my second year of graduate school, they hired me to teach the incoming freshman clarinet players. And at the end of that year, I was deciding what to do, finishing a thesis. And they said, if you'll go away and get your doctorate, uh, Jaime Voxman taught at the University of Iowa. Yeah. They said, go get a doctorate from Jaime teach somewhere and come back and you'll be the clarinet teacher at the University of Kansas. And in the interim, I had met Stan Kenton. And as hundreds of probably people who he met and, and advised at that time, I, uh, I, he said, stay in touch with me. First time I went to see him and he had heard a tape that Carmel Jones and I had made as students at Kansas. Carmel Jones was a great trumpet player who pl ultimately played with Horace Silver. I was there when he yeah, joined. Yeah, I mean, so that, that's quite a, a well, line. We grew up together. Anyway. Yeah. And uh, I was trying to make a decision about what to do after graduate school. I went to see Stan, and he said, well, what are you going to do? And I told him, and he's, I said, these are options. He said, well, don't you want to live your dream? Los Angeles or New York. That'd probably still be the moves that someone would make, wouldn't it? Well, it's it's certainly you know it's, it's, I mean it's the traditional choices either either. So my a or wife B. and I and a four-year-old we packed up a U-Haul trailer and an old car and came here. So it was Stan Kenton who 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 sort of got you to think and direct you. Here. Yes, yeah. and a man named Bill Hardy who eventually started Revelation Records. I first, excuse me, I first heard about Gary through Shelley Mann. I guess you, you had done a jazz gig with him, and he said, 
And he said, Sib, you've got to hear this guy play. Well, I was working with him and you at Universal. Yes, that's right. Out. Yeah. But yeah. Shelley was one of those people who was a legend by the time I came here. And the fact that he was such an instant friend was a shock. So you had two giants in the jazz industry, with yeah. Shelley Mann on one hand and Stan Kenton, really, you know, get you... Uh, and imagine that, also, besides opening some doors, I mean, just to give you the confidence when people of that level are behind you. I met Claire Fisher fairly early on. Not, it's, you had some pretty good connections there early on. Stan Kenton, Shelley Mann, Claire Fisher. Not a bad band. No. <laughs> Don, yeah, you, you ended up being in New York initially before you came out here, and you were with The Tonight Show in New York from the very beginning yeah. of the Carson period. Uh, how did you get settled in New York? Uh, well, and, and then ultimately, how did you transition In 1972, Johnny used to come out every like, two weeks at a time, and he decided he wanted to move here. So he told Doc, and they got five members of the orchestra that they wanted to bring out. And he said, you want to go out to L.A.? I said, yeah. Because <laughs> by that time, we were, musicians were taught, never say no. You could always say yeah today and no tomorrow, but not. Right? She said, no, <laughs> that's it. Oh, I got somebody else. Okay, so I, I had to go and tell my wife. She's got two young kids. So... I said, I want to go out and look at some houses this weekend, which I did. I saw 58 houses in the <laughs> valley. And I saw one that a guy didn't turn down and his credit fell through. So that was open. So I said, it had a pool for kids so that they wouldn't say, I don't want to go. And my wife was a ceramicist and had a plenty of place for that. So that's how I got hit. I got out myself, by the way. NBC didn't give me a dime to move out here. Wait, what, you mean when the Tonight Show musicians were given the option to move out to L.A., NBC didn't help any of help any. They didn't even say goodbye. <laughs> <laughs> That's incredible. They were mad at you. Well, was that Tarzana, your house in Tarzana? I didn't, huh? The house you're talking about, the yeah, one you had. Tarzana. Tarzana, yeah. right. Yeah. So uh, th that transition to L.A. was made possible because of the Tonight Show uh, transition. They were the, yeah, that was that go, one? no go, yeah. Right. You also had Joe Soldo in the uh, Carol Burnett, right? I already had the Carol Burnett show, and Doc said, now, I, you, you gotta, if you're going out there, you got to work five days. Oh, yes, sir, boy. I already had two no days taking off. for the Carol Burnett show. So you had, the Tonight Show was a five-day-a-week gig at that it time. It was at that time. At that time. Plus you had Carol Burnett show uh, through your connection, knowing Joe Friday Soldo. and Saturday, yeah. Right. right. So, so you basically had, you were working six six days a week at hey, least. Thursday night and Friday. You don't want to turn anything down. Right. And that's actually a good thing for our listeners as a musician. If someone asks you to do something, even if it doesn't pay a lot initially, it's especially as a young player, yeah. do everything. You know, never say no. I think that's a great. Yeah. Uh, well, model. it wasn't long until Doc said, uh, "Al said, Bo boss wants to see you upstairs." So I went up, and Doc had his mouthpiece. He always took his mouthpiece out and practiced. <laughs> <laughs> 
So I came in and he said, listen, you remember when I said you want to come out here? And you said, yeah. And I said, but you got to work five days a week. I thought, uh-oh, it's do go or no go. So I said, Doc, first four years on The Tonight Show, you were first trumpet player. Great trumpet player. And I said, and you always were taken off. I'd never see you. I said, Doc, you're my idol. So he <laughs> fell off laughing, and that was the case closed. Because you were doing some other gigs as well, and he, he didn't want you taking off from the show. Was that it? Yeah. Yeah, okay. <laughs> if, if I wanted to get this job, the least I could do is work it. Right. Right. But I didn't, and he laughed, and that was the end of the sh that case. Yeah, well, well, that, that's a cute thing. Now, Ronnie, you were out here as an eight-year-old. Your parents had relocated. <laughs> so how did you get connected, you know, with the actual industry as a young professional? Was, was it uh, just, you said you went on the road with... Uh, oh, well, uh, initially. a couple of bands, Les Brown's band, and I was in the Army. Uh, when I got out of Les Brown's band... Um, I took the same job Cipriano was talking about, right, the Moulin Rouge, Rouge right. because it was a supper club and you could make a living and stay in town. Right, it it wasn't line. a great job musically, right. but uh, before that, uh, I had done a concert with Les Brown. Uh, I don't know if I'm repeating myself. I told you this story. Right. But, uh, I did a concert with Les Brown uh, at UCLA. Uh, there was a piece called Concerto Grosso for Jazz Band and Symphony Orchestra by a German composer, Rolf Lieberman. Oh, yeah. And, and, uh, and it, is this the same concerto that was written? I know Harvey Estrin did one. Yeah, and, it's a, it was an alto, an alto feature. It was practically an alto yeah, concerto. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm aware. I know right. that piece. So yeah. uh, we did that concert, and Mancini happened to be there, and he walked up to me. I didn't know him. He didn't know me, but he came up and he said, uh, uh, by the way, he said, uh, you did a great job. It sounded really good. I said, he said, I hated the piece. <laughs> so I didn't think anything. This was... 1956 or seven, uh, a year and a half later, I used to try to get studio work. Now, there was something called a quota system. Uh, you, you probably don't remember no. that. I don't know if any of you guys do, but we had a system uh, that the union established, and if you earned X amount of dollars, it uh, didn't matter how, you weren't allowed to do studio work. Uh, uh, Ted Nash had three television shows that took three days a week and he made $80 each on those shows or whatever. I worked six days a week, like Cipriano, for $140 a week. But that monetary category kept me from accepting uh, a movie call. Wow. So uh, when a contractor named Bobby Helfer, who was a big power at that time, would call and he'd say to me, uh, I have a call for you. He said, are you still working the crappy job at the Moulin Rouge? And I'd say, yeah. And he'd go, he'd hang up. And one day I, I said, wait, 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 stop, stop. I said, before you hang up, if I knew I would be doing more studio work, I'd quit a job like that. He said, kid, I can't guarantee you a thing. Boom. <laughs> well, all of a sudden, when I got a call to do the Peter Gunn show, like Sip did, from Henry Mancini. And that was from Mancini hearing you yeah, play that Lieberman yeah, piece. Yeah, and he yeah. was the contractor, oh, the okay. big contractor. Now, all of a sudden, not only is Mancini a, a household word, but, a word, but, but 
all the musicians in Mancini were being asked for. He said, let me get the guys that play on Peter Gunn and all that. And all of a sudden the phone started to ring and Bobby Helfer, he would put Sip and I on all these dates. Universal Studios had 16 television shows a week. Oh. Uh, and wow. of course, what that meant is that they were doing daily shows and people like Jerry Goldsmith, Lalo Schifrin, uh, uh, John Williams was, he, he was learning how to be a composer. <laughs> uh, I mean, I remember John Williams would write a score and Stanley Wilson, who was running it, would come out and he'd take this out, take that out, take this out, take that out. So, uh, but we were working constantly, right? The, there were the so many shows, not just Universal, but television is what put doublers on the map. Right. Because they used small orchestras. Can you all describe, uh, from your recollection, what it was like in a work week when you knew, you know, what was your typical work week like? If one could describe it in general between TV shows, movies, uh, record dates, jingles. I mean, could, what was it a typical week like for you during the, the heyday of your careers? Could you, if you could capsulize it like that. Well, if you did a morning call and an afternoon call and then a record date at night, you could do 15 calls a week. It was nothing. Right. And there were guys that were just doing rock and roll record dates, right. and they were doing 18, 20 calls a week. Jingles. People. And violin players, they wouldn't take a studio call. They'd do record dates because pension was higher from a record date uh -huh. and a wow. studio call. Wow. So it was that vibrant. And what, if you could say what years would that those uh, productive years be between where, let's say from 1950 to where would that be? Well, not much. In, in 50, I think they still had... Did they still have studio contract orchestras yes, in 50? Yes, yes. Uh, the movies. Uh, every, every studio had, had about a 50-piece orchestra, and that ended with TV. Right. Uh, and everything was freelance. The world was, was a freelance. Uh, uh, I would say started probably in the late 50s yeah. through the 60s, 70s. Uh, 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 but uh, uh, there was so much work that... Uh, uh, the only thing I bring this up is that we, we had so many leaders we worked for, and right. and we had so much work with if there's a leader that I didn't like, and I would get a call from him, I would turn it down because something else would, would show right. up. Right, there was so much work you knew that yeah. you were going to continue. Ron, my Ronnie turned the Academy Awards oh, down yeah. one night. And there's also the Academy <laughs> Awards, which was a big deal. Every composer, John Williams, Elmer Bernstein, all uh, they did the Academy Awards. Uh, and John Johnny Green, John Green, the composer, right. uh, who fancied himself a, a conductor. He was actually a much better songwriter than a conductor. But uh, quite frankly, he was a bit of a pain to work for. He was a, a he. Uh, I can't describe it, but he was so difficult. Well, he used to bug you on a gig. Uh, not to me personally, but. We did two Academy Awards in a row, and I said, if this guy gets it the third year, I'm going to turn it down. So, sure enough, John, he thought the Academy Awards was the epitome of where he wanted to be. Third year comes up, now he's got a new contractor uh, because he had a fight with the old one. I turned down the Academy Awards. No big deal. I fell in with five other jobs because that took a whole week. I get a phone call from the contractor. And he said, uh, you turned down the Academy Awards. I said, he said, you got a 50-piece orchestra, and you turned it, why'd you turn it down? I said, 
well, you want to know the real reason? Because I think Johnny Green's a pain in the ass. And he said, but he said, uh, he thinks you hate him because he can't visualize anybody turning down the Academy Award. <laughs> so, so I said, why don't you tell him I'm busy? He said, that's not good enough. <laughs> he said, write him a letter. So I wrote him a letter, which I handed to the contractor, and I said, uh, John, he said, I'm so sorry I can't do the Academy with you this year, but my family and I are playing in a tennis tournament. <laughs> we, 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 did, we did belong to a tennis club. I, I and I said, my, my children would be crushed if they found I wasn't able to play with them right. in the tennis tournament. So I get a letter back from him. He said, Ronnie, thank you so much. He said, I, I really understand the situation. He said, if I want to have some lessons on how to live my life properly, I'm going to call you first. <laughs> <laughs> that was a true story. I have some Johnny Green stories that are not pertinent to what you're doing. But I'd be to Let's save them for lunch. <laughs> okay. Done. But I do, I do want to ask each of you um, uh, some individual questions that pertain to you know, your individual situations. Um, one, Don, because you worked and you were established in New York first, and then you came out here. So yeah. you were established in both coasts. Can you tell us what the difference was, uh, what you perceive as the difference in working in New York as opposed to L.A., even yes. as far as the players and as well as the geographic? Well, the players were good good players. A lot of them came out. Joe Solo came out. But um, we did an awful lot. Most of my outside work were jingles. In New York. Jingles in New York, yeah. yeah. And the nicest thing about that is, if they liked the jingle enough, after 13 weeks, they'd give you a whole new salary. When I came out here, after April, that was the end of doing any jingles. They didn't do much out here. So out here, the work was more geared towards the actual uh, uh, movies or or TV dates. Oh, I hear everything. Yeah, everything. And ve very few jingles. I see. So it was more diversified out here, it sounds like. Yeah. Oh, of course, film right. and uh, TV and jingles and, right. and a lot of albums.
And Gary, uh, I wanted to ask you, because you, you, you came up through a very academic background, going through music school, conservatory, and trained as a classical clarinetist. Um, uh, how, did, how much help did you feel that training as a classical clarinetist uh, helped as you became a saxophonist and a very notable jazz saxophonist and as a flutist? That training in the classical, real severe classical clarinet uh, uh, you know, uh, lane gave you for your other uh, pursuits? Well, I feel so strongly that from an academic standpoint, that if you don't have the posture of ability to play classically and to, especially to improvise, you have to be playing in a nightclub with a rhythm section and doing something that keeps your jazz life alive. Right. But it but, seemed to me that the doorway to the studios was to have the classical clarinet background. Really? I what? consider it a really good fortune in my life to have sat next to the first chair classical clarinet players in the studio. I played second to Dominic Fair and to uh, Jim Cantor, right. Emily Bernstein. Right. And so you felt not only th that the academic uh, background helped you in that regard, but that it also helped you in playing your instruments even in other styles. Yes, and I think of, uh, I worked for one composer who often wrote for the alto to be played a la Jimmy Abato, or classically. Right. And he'd write in the part, today is more like the bird than the mule. <laughs> <laughs> I got it. So that was more jazz than classical. And I had two, right. two mouthpieces. Right, right. And if you didn't have the posture for both, you wouldn't be there.
Gene, you told me years ago that uh, during the 1950s, when you ultimately settled out here, and they recognized you as an oboe doubler, that you had a, a, a problem for a number of years uh, having any days off because you couldn't get a sub. Well, because I was the only oboe doubler who played flute when I came to this uh, town. Right, so... Uh, and I was so glad when he came to town, Don. Right. <laughs> so <laughs> so the, the, the double redoubling really... Well, yeah, the oboe was it for me, putting me on the map. Right. Yeah. It opened up doors. It did and, open up a lot of doors. Right, and I think to, in today's world for younger doublers, where there are no longer sections of four or five saxophone players doubling, where now... In many situations, it's one or two is a section. Now, if you have two saxophone players a double, it's a section. At least in New York, it's become that. Uh, that's, but certainly, the, the double reads are a key right now, maybe even more so than ever, to sustaining a career as a doubler. Well, when I came to, as I said before, I was the only guy who played, played oboe and flute. But now there's about 20 guys that play, and, right. they, all, and they all play well. Right. That, yeah. that's, that's and the young radically. kids coming up, they're great players. You, we have to mention in a setting like this, because you, you would have found him as your subject, Bob Tricarico. Absolutely. Was a, was a re and, and there's someone also from New York to L.A., yeah. like Don. At the same right. time. Right. And Trick was a classical bassoonist. Right, and that opened huge doors for him in the recording studios out here. Oh, sure. He was on Burnett. Great, great jazz tenor player too. Great jazz tenor well, player. Played with Tony Bennett for many years. Yes, yes. As well, and uh, beautiful bassoon player. Right, Bob Tricarico, who, who we lost a num number of years ago now. Yeah, it was sad. But and Ronnie, you alluded to this earlier. Uh, your versatility, because uh, as far as coming into the studio and being able to adapt to a certain style of alto sax was something that you had been going through from very early years on. So two of the greatest, I think, uh, film scores that feature alto saxophone, I think we can easily agree on Taxi Driver and Body Heat as being uh, representative of that, and you were featured on both. And I think, it's, I think it's important to talk about what happened the day of when you're going in there. How much preparation ahead of time did you know uh, for what you were going to ultimately have to do. I think this is really interesting. I got a, I got a, a phone call, bring your alto, uh, and uh, I showed up, and it turned out to be for Bernard Herrmann, uh, and it was a, a saxophone solo uh, the, and the score for Taxi Driver. But Bernard Herrmann was very upset because uh, he had brought a tape of an English saxophone player, I think, I told you, I think it was Roy Willicks. Was Roy Willicks, who was, was Robert Farnan's Yeah, saxophone. and he, 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 they wouldn't let him use it because in those days, if you scored the film here, you couldn't bring outside music in. That was a union rule. So they brought me in and they said, he's really upset. Can you play like that? And they played the tape for me. And, you know, it, 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 was, it was very nice, a lot of vibrato, whatever. And I said, yeah, fine. So I recorded it. Uh, it also featured Lloyd Elliott on the trombone and Yuan Racy on the trumpet. And I recorded this. I was in and out of there in an hour and a half or so. I thought it was incidental music. I went to see the movie, and it turned out that it was the main theme of the movie, and they used it 50 times. 
And, uh, you would have asked for more money. Yeah, I should right? have asked for more money. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but but, but uh, uh, anyway, uh, when it comes to body heat, was with John Barry. I, I did a lot of work with John Barry. I think Gary worked with him uh, also. Uh, and he loved Paul Desmond. So from what I did on body heat uh, to taxi driver were miles apart. Right. But uh, I loved Paul Desmond. Uh, right. I could kind of imitate him. Right. And he said, I'd like you to play this kind of like as if Paul Desmond was playing it, right. which is much less vibrato and a little fuzzier and, and, and you know. Right. So, uh, so that's how that came about. And uh, I, I did quite a few pictures with him right. where he featured the uh, alto. I think one of the points I think to be gained here, I think maybe all of you could offer some support or, or even just agree, I think, is that as a doubler, not only playing multiple woodwind instruments, but being responsible for multiple styles of music, uh, you have to be very flexible as a musician and you have to love a lot of different styles of music. You have to want to, you know, love that music in order to sound convincing uh, in, in a way. So, uh, you know, I think for younger players who come up with sort of, uh, or they come through school and they're, you know, classically trained perhaps and maybe play some saxophone and they play in the jazz band, that coming out of school is like that is not going to be enough preparation to having a successful career in, in music. You have to go much beyond what schools offer, any school, even the school that does its best job. There are too many styles, especially today, there are too many styles of music that one has to be responsible for in order, to, in order to come in and do what you did on those films and what all of you have done in various forms. You, ju you just can't, uh, 
think, well, I'm, I'm good enough in this one area, that's going to be enough for me, and I play these instruments. Uh, I, I, I want to just bring up one more point, some of the type of things we have to do. We're doing a date with Dominic Fronteri. Do you know that name? I don't. Well, Dominic Fronteri was a composer who became famous because he married Georgia uh, Fronteri, who owned the L.A. Rams. Oh, right. She was, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and he ended, up, ended yeah. up in jail. Be, uh, <laughs> uh, but uh, Dominic Fronteri uh, did a lot of television shows. He was a good composer. But one day, uh, he had a cue, and the cue was Ravel's Bolero. Uh, I had an alto flute solo, and I started to to play da, 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 da. Uh, the the, uh, the guy in charge he ran out he said no 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 you can't you can't do that and dominic says why not he says we have to pay that, that's Ravel. you can't use that so dominic leans over and he says all right ronnie on the next take uh just play something like that i said okay ready <laughs> and he gives a downbeat and now and for about a minute and a half, I did a version of my own of Ravel's Bolero. Now, having a jazz background really helped for something like that because I could make up, uh, uh, it's like a jazz player who can't actually play Ravel's Bolero, we can play something like it. Right, right. And did they still have this snare drum going along yeah. with the underpinning? <laughs> but, but I'm sure you've all had moments like that where somebody said, oh, by the way, uh, uh, Don, you know, uh, play something on the recorder, some kids wandering around or something like that. I don't. I didn't have time to write. I didn't write anything for that. Uh, but anyway, I, th yeah. I thought you'd get a kick out of that. Yeah. My question to you and to your students is, where are they going to work? Right. Well, that, 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 that is a question for all of you. You've all seen the business change from being a very productive, very vibrant industry to now uh, it's sort of a ghost of what it once was. Uh, so my question back to you is, <laughs> what, are we, what are we supposed to tell the young doublers? I mean, there is still work, let's face it, but most of it for doubling seems to revolve around the musical theater today as yeah. far as life-sustaining... Uh, income and benefits. What do you, what do you, what is the what should we be telling the young students today about what to prepare, how to prepare? Go to law school. You know what Phil Woods once said, and this is 20, 25 years ago, nineteen ninety four. He said this. Uh, I had him come out to the university where I was teaching, and he said, you know, years ago I'd say, you know, if you were good, really good. Uh, and, and you really cared, and you had passion, just keep at it because, you know, someone somewhere will notice you. He said, today, this is 1994, he says, I say, if there's anything else you do as well, or that you think you could see yourself doing as well, do that instead. And that's 25 years ago, Phil said that. And my mother said, you can't make a living playing the clarinet. <laughs> well, it, it, I mean, you did okay. <laughs> but again, what what do you think we should be telling the young doublers today? I mean, we laughed at that with the law school thing because, you know, obviously, <laughs> you know, it, it's, I, a cute, I, I, it's a cute I, thing. I, I know. I, you know, my advice, uh, the best the best paying jobs right now are the major symphony orchestras. If someone is really good at a particular instrument, now that's not a doubler, now we're right. talking about. Right. Uh, years ago, most people didn't want to work in the symphonies because movies and things paid paid a lot more money. Right. Uh, but they played in the symphony because they loved the music. Right. Now uh, the major symphony jobs 
uh, they're making a tremendous amount of money. And the first chair players... Especially in L.A. The job, God, the money that they're getting versus any other orchestra in L.A. Right. Well, they, they're, they in Chicago, I think, are the highest paying yeah. uh, jobs now. But to get those jobs is, uh, is a needle in a haystack. 500 people apply for, for and, second clarinet. Uh, right, and, and, and a 100 of them, any one of 100 could probably do the job well. Uh, and that's hard. So what do we tell the ones who want to be doublers, who want to be multiple re players? What, what would you tell them today? Well, I had a double major. I had an oboe major and a music education. I recommend you do that. Unless you were a good plumber well, Gary or something. Gary did. That's right. right. Gary had both. And, and yeah. Gary, you you also had music and, and performance as well, right? As majors? A, I have a bachelor's degree in performance and one in music ed. Right. Uh, so that the music ed thing is still viable. But even those jobs are fewer now yeah. because mu music in the schools is not as vibrant as it once was, let's say, in the 50s and 60s for certain. Um, so what do we tell them to do? do? Do a double major as well? Make sure you have a backup? I mean, I was told that in the 70s. My parents made me do it, yeah. and I did. Yeah. I, I did music. I was told to go to college to have something to fall back on. Exactly, which was <laughs> always, yes, is that, the, is that the message we send today uh, still? I think so. I think so. Plus, Maybe. there's no bands where kids are good. Yeah, there's no Learn minor leagues trade. to gain experience. There's no dance bands. Yeah, and, and uh, even even jobs. When I grew up, uh, the bands were not really happening. There were a few: Maynard's Band and Buddy's Band, and Woody's Band were the three bands that were available um, to kids coming out of college. And the, you know, but there were hotel jobs. There were bands in all hotels and playing behind singers who had charts and all. And that, that was sort of like a way of. You know, getting up there in the early professional gigs, what I would say, even you know, moving the minor leagues up, 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 so you got into the studio world or to solo recordings or whatever. It seems like that whole minor league, that area beneath the top professional jobs, is evaporated, and so yeah. it, it, it's hard. I mean, uh, but I, I, I guess, I guess maybe just to have a backup is probably the very, message. De very definitely. Yeah. Uh, even Las Vegas. Remember Las Vegas. Uh, at one time, uh, had a had a twenty five piece band in in every uh, uh, casino, uh, and a lot of guys who didn't do studio work went to Las Vegas and maybe Reno, uh, I don't know, and played and uh, made a good living, uh, right. uh, and also did other things, bought right. property and everything. Uh, one day uh, they put the band behind a curtain; you couldn't see it anymore, and the wise guy said. What do we need to hire a band for? Make a record, and I, uh, they dropped all the musicians except when Tony Bennett came in, wanted an orchestra, right. and some guy came out and conducted to a record, and and five hundred people were out of work, you know, and never got back. It never got back. Let let's just segue a little bit uh, before we wrap this up a little bit to your the, during the heyday of your work period. What was your practice routine like? If if you could. You know, capsulize. Obviously, every week is different depending on the job and the hours. But if you could sort of uh, summarize, what might your practice routine have been uh, during those during those years? And you know, what not only you know how many hours or whatnot, but what did you practice? Well, I think that part of what told us you had to have ready the next day was what the service would call the night before and say, 
Tomorrow you need alto saxophone, piccolo, right. flute, bass, clarinet. And uh, I always, not always, but almost for 45, 50 years, I had an office outside my house. And I'd go there at 5.30 or 6 o'clock in the morning before the traffic was anything like it is now. <laughs> You're right. And practice for a couple of hours. Okay, so let, let me, I, and I know this story from our, our relationship over the years, that you would go and get up and be ready and practicing at around 6 o'clock in the morning in order to be prepared for the date that day on whatever instruments you were. That, that's the seriousness you took uh, your job. Uh, well, there was a period where we worked, I think, I'm not sure Ronnie did, but uh, we worked for Warner Brothers. We did their cartoons, Pinky and the Brain, <laughs> those things. And you never knew if you were going to be in the business the next day or not. Absolutely the most difficult music we ever played. Yeah. And so being prepared or having, it, having everything as good as you could make it. I have a strong feeling about playing the flute and the clarinet particularly with great classical artists and playing with their recording. And, and practicing that daily? Yes, having some part of your routine where you're playing, getting the impulse of how to play by listening, playing along like there's seven Bach sonatas. I played them all many times with Julius Baker. As a reference to building the audio memory. Yes, that's the point. Yeah, great, Don. If you're a noble or an English horn player, which I was, you have to make your own reads. Right. So in addition to practicing, in addition to taking, if I had like 15 horns, I'd have to make sure that things were in shape. I couldn't run to the dealer all the time. Right. So that's what happened to me. Tell them the story about the morning you backed over to the instrument, the car. Remember that? Yeah. That's what my, I had to take my, my daughter to school, so I put the horns on the, right on the, by the trunk there, and then I got called in. So, come on, come on, come on. Ran out on, <clears throat> got in the car, got in the, yeah, and backed over my oboe English horn and bass clarinet and, and clarinet. Tenor. And the only one that was damaged was the bass, the baritone, the bell was kind of mashed up. And uh, that's... That's when you know you've, you've the worked joys, too hard. <laughs> the joys of being a father and a, and musician. a musician. Right. When he told us about it, and then at one point, it was a tenor, I think, the neck was so flattened out. You put the neck in and it wouldn't go. And oh. At one point, you stood up and said to the leader, could I hear an A, please? <laughs> Gene, what was your practice routine like? Uh, Just like Don said, I, I can't add to it much. But, getting the but your day getting... off... Saturday and Sunday, you'd work on oboe reads and Just English getting, horn reads. Right, always. And you'd right. really bug your wife. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so there's really never a day off, really, because no, no, you're no, always, you play, you're no, always no. have to. When you play the double reads, you're absolutely right. But yeah, there's not. And Ronnie, do you remember how well, you could I, capsulize your you practice? Know, uh, in the heyday of our heydays, we were always working so much that uh, the only instruments I would practice were 
would be possibly the ones that I haven't played. You know, if I'm playing like saxophone clarinet, then I pick up the flute and blow a little bit. But uh, sometimes we'd have an idea of, of certain leaders. I know if I got a call from John Barry or something, he's going to write me solo saxophone poems. I make sure it got a good read and right. so on and so forth. Uh, but most of the time, uh, we, we kind of winged it. Uh, didn't quite know what we we're going to have to play and and uh, try to keep up on all your instruments as much as you can. But we, we are playing them daily. You know, it's not like weeks would go by where we're not picking right. up. And unlike today, where most uh, jobs uh, are contracted more than one day or one night in advance, and you know sort of what instruments and what music you might even be playing. You were literally given a call the night before, and we, we had this in New York for many years with Radio Registry. You'd be given a call, you'd know the instruments, you had no idea what music, but it was, you know, the night before for a, a mm -hmm. jingle. Uh, and, and sometimes, you know, you, you didn't even know what style of music, but you knew what instruments to bring. And so, you know, it, it's a constant juggling act of as to what to be prepared on. But the, I guess the best way, your statement, I think, is really true. Like, if you're not playing a lot of a certain instrument, let's say you're not playing a lot of alto flute or bass clarinet, you know, you can't let that go because all of a sudden the next day the call might be for that as well. Yeah. One point to make for other for doublers, my clarinet teacher at the University of Kansas who really changed my life with the clarinet, he played double lip. And mm. when I first started playing the flute, you can't play the clarinet double lip and no. play the flute. Now, if you're going to play flute to any degree of... Once I realized yeah. that, then it changed. It made the flute a lot easier. Right. So for doublers, you know, if you, if you have been a classically trained clarinet player, orchestrally geared, playing double lip, once you play the flute, that has to change. It, it, would, it would wreck your flute It chops. would wreck. There's not a chance. Can't yeah. even get them going. No, no. It's enough that one lip is buried. If you bury two lips... <laughs> There's no hope. That's right. <laughs> you know, um, what were, if you could name one event that you might say was the most memorable experience from each of your careers? If if you could just isolate one, what would that be? Uh, Don, do you, do you have a memory, a specific memory? Well, on Carol Burnett's show, I had an English horn solo <laughs> starting the, after the ten minute break, and I had to get. The reed, which any, any doubler knows, you had to get the reed at least 10 minutes wet so it's not soggy, it's just responsive. So I was spent the whole 10 minutes getting ready to, for the solo, which I knew was going to start the downbeat the next 10 uh, half, uh, hour. So the guys started coming in and got in Willie Schwartz. Famous Willie Schwartz. Yeah. Famous. Infamous. I set it down just as he walked and broke the reed right in half. Here I am trying to, I've got about two minutes to get a reed wet. I played this thing on a dry reed, and Willie says, you know, I like the other reed better. All of a sudden. You were sitting there? That's one of the classics. I, I had a laugh. <laughs> that's that's that great. Is, that is good. He had a classic sense of humor. Yeah, and 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 Ronnie, what would be that experience for uh, you? Well, uh, I you know I uh, I had so many 
you know, I can't. I really can't single one one thing uh, out that was so out, outstanding. But uh, getting back to, I I will interject. Uh, as long as he brought up Willie Schwartz, uh, uh, this is not exactly what you asked. But Sip and I and Willie Schwartz had worked a job, and we were having dinner uh, somewhere in some restaurant, and and uh, uh, I ordered. It was pasta or something. Willie was eating a steak, and and I said, "Hey, that really looks good." He says, "Yeah, here, would you would you like to try something?" He hands me this piece of steak, had some gristle on it, so I put it in my mouth. I started to chew it. I swallowed it, and it it got stuck, you know. And that was before the days of the of the Heimlich maneuver. Right, right. right. And I'm I'm going like, <laughs> and Willie goes like that. It flies out, and I said, "Oh," he, I said, "Willie," uh, I said, "Thanks so much. I think you may have saved my life." He said, "Well," he said, "If you noticed," he said, "I hesitated on the first two slaps because I had kind of a slow week." <laughs> <laughs> that was Willie. <laughs> yeah, very good. I thought he said he sidelined the first. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he, I, I, a lot of people know what what that means. But the, he, he sidelined the first two slaps. When yeah. Willie died in 1990, his wife and kids and called me and asked me if, if I would give a eulogy at his funeral. And the other person who spoke was Billy May. And uh, we told some Willie stories. And afterwards, a woman came up to me and she said, I'd like to write all those. I'd like to have all the stories put down. And uh, she made up a booklet called The Great American Short Story. <laughs> yeah. yeah. We all have copies of that. Remind me a copy. I'll send you send a copy. Send me a copy. Okay. <laughs> it's funny how we retrogress from our most exciting uh, <laughs> things that ever happened to us to Willie Schwartz. Both yeah. those stories. <laughs> Willie's probably thinking, yeah, I knew you guys would remember me. Well, to immortalize Willie a little bit more here, the one thing he did to me after I'd known him for a long time was there was a, it was on the Carol Burnett show and this piece started with a clarinet solo that was pretty nice cadenza. And I was watching for Peter Matz. Who was uh, conducting it, right? He was a conductor. Right. And I hadn't seen him, but Willie took a clarinet pad and put it on the floor and put his foot over it. And just as I was ready to play and Peter's ready to give the downbeat, holding his hands up, Willie moved his foot and he said, Is that yours? <laughs> <laughs> My first movie picture in this town was West Side Story. Really? And uh, we're rehearsing the main title. Right. And almost a, with John Green. And John Green was bald. He'd line up all his pills. <laughs> yeah, and he had a always a, a dentist jacket when he conducted. <laughs> and he's wailing away and sweating. He sweat a lot. And all once the door opens up, and in walks this entourage of people. And, and it opens up, and who steps out? Leonard Bernstein. Is it Bernstein or Bernstein? It's Bernstein. Okay. Yeah, it's Elmer Bernstein. And, and he, had a, he had a cape on, and he had a long cigarette holder. Right. And he said, John Green, you son of a bitch, the tempo is too fast. And John Green just, he threw the, his baton went in the air, he began to sweat even more. He, he went to grab his pills, and they all fell out. <laughs> to me, I said, God, is this what goes on in the, 
major movie pictures. And or this something. is your first movie. My picture. first movie picture. <laughs> yeah. So I thought it was, and a lot of my stories involved John Green. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Gary, what's your most memorable experience from your career? If you can isolate one. You mean encountering people? Maybe? No, any any anything that stands out to you. Well, once we were here, after having had the training that I had at Kansas, which I thought was very good, encountering Claire Fisher was a profound influence. He had things that I think his whole life was just about music, all. No sense of the business or anything like that. And encountering Warren Marsh in the jazz field. Well, those are two giants. Absolutely and, profound. Yeah. And the fact that I had intimate time with them, yeah. recordings and lots of stuff with Claire. And right. And, and for all of you, if you had to give advice today uh, to not only to young doublers, but to young musicians, what are, I mean, all of you have received many honors and are revered by your colleagues and by generations. I'm one of them. What are the traits as a musician that you felt feel are most important that helped you uh, succeed throughout your musical career? What are the personal traits that one has to be aware of, uh, not just playing your instruments well, beyond that, that you would you know, offer to young musicians as something to really mm -hmm. think about uh, in the way one behaves and one uh, approaches being a professional? Well, I'll, I'll tell you. Uh, when I started playing music, I never had thoughts about making a lot of money. I, uh, it was a passion for me. I wanted to play. I wanted to be a musician. And I think, regardless of we talk about the music business not being the same, I think it's very important that if musicians want to play, they should become as good as they could on on whatever instruments they play and not worry so much about how much money they're going to make because they can live you can live with that the rest of your life because it's something you really wanted to do it's a matter it's a matter of your passion that that would be my advice you know so and that's, that's i think at the essence of it all and uh because if you don't have that passion then it's just another job yeah. and, and it really is a job rather than a a a a, a, a life experience yeah, well, yeah. Uh, I mean, how many people go to work and love what they're doing? Not too many. I always enjoy going to work, really. You still do. He's your modern miracle. Yeah, he's our hero. Zip, tell us how old you are, just so everybody out there knows that you're still playing beautifully and still doing oh, the Academy thank Awards. You. Thank you. And you're how old now? 90. 90. <laughs> <laughs> and always be happy on the job, even if the leader's a drag. You hear you that, know, Ronnie? It's all, Johnny it's, Green's it's, listening. It's all, yeah. it's, all, it's all attitude. I'm sorry, Johnny, but it really wasn't a tennis tournament. <laughs> <laughs> really, have a good attitude. Enjoy Like the people you're working with. You go to work. Yeah. You I play mean, three hours. You're right. loving it. Right. 
then you go home or you go to lunch and go to another gig. I right. think it's beautiful. But the other thing is also, you know, enjoy your colleagues. Oh, and definitely. Here you guys have been together, I mean, known each other a lifetime. How could you not have fun playing with these guys? Right. Just in their company is fun. Right, right. <clears throat> Gary, any, ex any additional words of advice about personal? I think for me, looking at the whole thing, it's the variety. The various things, the opportunity to play classical music, to play in the studios, to have these guys as friends, to play in a nightclub and play with the jazz guys. And right, and to, tr to try to seek out that type of variety in your yes, life and playing. Yeah, variety. Yeah. Don, okay. what, what, what did you feel? Is I think we're a lot like bullfighters. <laughs> 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 Things come at you, and the thing you want to do is try to let the thing not hit you, go by you. So constantly, you're straight ahead, straight ahead. Everything is straight ahead. As a double, you don't know whether we're going to have a flute solo, an oboe solo, an alto sax. Jet. You have no idea, and you go to the, the copyist office and you say i'm the oboe oh okay let's see uh full piccolo oboe english horn and you take a list drive up to the recording studio unload the stuff you need beat it drive down to the parking lot beat it back and an hour later you start it's just straight ahead yeah. It's don't, all, don't get too rattled with anything. Don't get too rattled straight <laughs> ahead. But anyway, let, I want to just wrap this up uh, by saying um, thank you to all of you for coming out and sharing your life experiences and uh, knowledge uh, because you've all given us so much music. The general public doesn't know you. Musicians should know you. And younger musicians now, I hope, will start investigating uh, what you've accomplished, because all of you are on Wikipedia, if you know it or not. There's a Wikipedia page on each one of you now. And many YouTubes of experiences, and even stuff from The Tonight Show with you and Johnny. There's stuff up, it's all up there for them to, uh, you know, uh, learn from and, and realize how incredible the music making of your generation was and, and how great all of you were and, and as an inspiration to my generation and now hopefully to others. So thanks, guys. I appreciate it very much. Well, thank you. It was fun. Thanks. All right.